My calculations about how to stay alive and sane on this particular planet have clearly been at fault. Lots of people are plenty uglier and poorer than me without seeming to mind, without the self-hate and self-pity. The sentimentality, in a word, that makes me such a quivering condom of neurosis and ineptitude. Welcome to AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. I'm your host, Ramia Amudin, with co-host Jacob Shemansky and technical producer Nisreen Abdel-Majid. I would love to tell you more about this quote, but I think it's better off if I hand it over to Jacob. Success by Martin Amos is the source of this quote, mm-hmm. and that was recommended by the one and only Dave Brown, who's joining us today. Hello, Jacob. Hello, Romeo. Who's Dave Brown? I don't know, some guy. That's no, that's not true. Huge commodity <laughs> on AMI TV and AMI Audio. The host of Now with Dave Brown, which you can listen to and watch on AMI TV at 9 a.m. Eastern on weekdays. Woo woo. Hey, Dave. Hey, guys. It's a super pleasure to be here talking about books. This is a long time coming, Ramya. We've yeah. been circling each other to talk about oh, books for a long time. I've been circling you for sure, at least two seasons in. And then Jacob <laughs> comes on. Yeah, I'm not going to take it personally, but I will <laughs> say. Jacob comes on, and now, boom. <laughs> Not only is Dave Brown on, but this might be the most controversial thing we reviewed on the Oh, on boy. The show. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, I, I, think, I think we'll get into that, but I kind of forgot how uh, distasteful this book is at times. Yeah, yeah that's one way to put it. Like, success <laughs> by like, Martin sorry, Amos guys. was a great recommendation. Not in the sense that we all loved it, but in the sense that it'll make for great conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, tell us more. Um, What are we doing first? Synopsis, Jay? Yeah, uh, before we get into it, um, let's make sure the listeners know what we're actually talking about here. In success, Martin Amos pens a mismatched pair of foster brothers. One, a quivering condom of neurosis and ineptitude. The other, a bundle of contempt, vanity, and stock response. In a single London flat. He binds them with ties of class hatred, sexual rivalry, and a disappointed love and throws them a disloyal girlfriend and a spectacularly unstable sister to create a modern-day Jacobean revenge comedy that soars with malicious poetry. So this is success, in a nutshell. Whatever a nutshell can be uh, classified as in this book. But, Dave, why this book? I chose this book because Martin Amos is someone who crafts and plays with the English language And uses a couple of my favorite storytelling tropes and is willing to experiment with them. Keeping in mind, this book was uh, released very early in his writing career. He basically released this book before the time he turned 30 years old. The two tropes that he uses are uh, the dueling multiple narrator effect, Mm. where you're getting the story from the perspective of both Terry and Gregory or Terrence and Gregory. Which is fascinating because just in general, you're getting that idea of people perceiving the same thing differently in real time. The other thing is, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I've been told spoilers are okay no, you're fine. here. Yeah, that's all Spoilers good. are good. This is a complete review. They're both deeply unreliable narrators. Mm. So it's so fascinating to me to tell a story from two different perspectives that are perceiving the world in different ways, but you eventually realize they're both deeply unreliable. It's a fascinating, fascinating way of storytelling. I read this for the first time when I was in my first year of university at McGill in a British literature class. So this was an assigned reading. Hmm. And at 19 years old or 20 years old, 
I had never read a book like this before, and it just brought my brain to life. And for 20 years, it's been almost 20 years since I've been a first-year English Lit student, I've been thinking about this book. Mm. I've been thinking about the way this book ended. But to be honest and candid with you, I had forgotten the book itself. Right. So Mm. upon reading this for the sake of this conversation, rereading this for this conversation, I almost immediately emailed you guys to say, oof, this (laughs) might have been a little too crass. (laughs) This might have aged a little too poorly in the last 20 years. And it's extremely graphic. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so it's a fascinating storytelling exercise. Mm. But I think the fact that it's just so graphic also really makes it spring to life. It's graphic not just in language and in themes, but, like, it's just extremely gross. The characters yep. are despicable. Yep. They're absolutely <laughs> depraved. Oh, help, help me come up with other adjectives, because that's not enough. I don't know. Degenerates? Degenerates, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just There's just so much. And the thing is, they describe each other, but they also describe themselves. Right, and I found that to be very fascinating. It's like, oh yeah, Terry, you gross monster. You're always drinking and smoking, and can't get any girl. But also the way Terrence would describe himself on bad days and bad moments, and I was like, oh, like we can't even pretend, you know, that that <laughs> I don't know how these <laughs> men are being viewed in society. But I am. I really love the way you put um, the storytelling. What's the second uh, storytelling method? Uh, the unreliable narrator. Okay, yeah, that's the mm-hmm. second one. What was the first one? Uh, the multi the multi narrator. Okay, You're telling the story with. from yep. two different perspectives. I guess in movie in movie making they would call that the Rashomon technique, mm. which that's not unheard of now, especially with audiobook narration and such. Um, but I guess when you read it, it felt very fresh. Oh, it like again, it, bearing in mind that I read it in two thousand and four, and the book came out in the late seventies. There was probably already a sense of some dating in the language, and certainly uh, the perception of uh, immigrants. Uh, there was a lot of uh, very overt but casual racism um, mm. in the yeah. novel, mm-hmm. which I had forgotten about that too. Slurs. So it's really yep. jar. It's really jarring to read it through the context of twenty twenty three eyes. But I also wonder, even in two thousand and four eyes, like maybe, I mean, a a professor assigned this and he was a young man who was part of the LGBTQ2S plus community. So it's, so it's not as if this was like some yob (laughs) who actually like assigned the book. It wasn't some old straight white guy who assigned this. He wanted to challenge us in this literature class with this uh, somewhat raunchy material. I found this book challenging to read. Like yep. this is one of the hardest books I've read in a while because one it it's difficult to read because of the language. Um Martin writes very um hmm, how should I put this? He's incredibly good with language to the point where he performs linguistic jujitsu. Yes. <laughs> like you don't yes. some, sometimes the way he words things, like you need to think about it twice before you yes. understand what that is. As he's a narrator, saying. I can't mm-hmm. imagine how many times you have to go through this. Yeah. Also, there's a lot of passages that are just gross. Yep. The way they talk about women, the way they talk about foreigners, the way they talk about themselves mm-hmm. can be really difficult to read sometimes. And the uh, the two narrators and the unreliable narrators makes it so that it's kind of hard to follow the story sometimes. Mm, and mm. it took me longer than I cared to admit to, to, understand, what's going to on. understand that they were very unreliable. 
Okay, I, t- I, was I took their word you, for it. When did you both realize? Like, uh, yo, like halfway. Yeah. Okay. Good. It took me like halfway to realize. Oh, both of these guys are complete liars, but in like very opposite directions. Somebody, I think it was at the seventy-five percent mark because I was actually keeping track of like what was going on with me at certain points of the book and when I could feel like I was starting to sit with the content and the language and you know descriptions but uh or, or my own biases maybe but the <laughs> the point at which I realized like Gregory just isn't who he's been saying he is yeah, was yeah. <laughs> well into the book seriously well past the halfway point because you know he, uh, Terry's been saying uh, Gregory's a liar from day one but I was like yeah okay obviously you're gonna say that you hate him you're jealous um but yeah, there was a there was a point where you know the the information just didn't match up, and I think it was the point when what's her name Joan June, I'm doing the thing you're not supposed to because they were doing it in the book, not getting her name right. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was Jane and Gregory kept getting her name wrong. Yeah, now I'm getting her name wrong. <laughs> so there you go. It's the influence. It's, it's the so influence. Terrible. You're such yeah. a Gregory. Yes. <laughs> if if I were if uh, so, Ramya, I'm closer to you on this one. If, when I first read this book, that the twist of the truly unreliable, particularly yes. Gregory being unreliable. Yes. It only really hit me when he explicitly tells you that he's Pretty been much. a liar, which is, I believe, in November or December, yeah. right? Like, it's and, way late. And, mm-hmm. and the way this book is laid out, it's told January, February, March, April, May. It's broken down by month. Mm-hmm. And it's not until Gregory makes the confession. And that confession to this day is why I remember this book. As he describes how awful his life yes. actually is yeah. compared to the way that he's gloated and glowed for the entire oh. book about his life. It almost makes him sympathetic. It doesn't make him sympathetic, but it almost makes him it sympathetic. Does. It was sad, mm-hmm. uh, especially because he described that um, that sex scene with June, Joan, and then oh. uh, later we find out what actually <laughs> happened, or, you know, in the, the words of the woman. And I was like, no. And then it just comes spiraling, right? All the things you know about Gregory that are now tossed. Um do you want to get into the, the, the roles that the women play? The sisters? Yes. I mean, we have to. Yeah. I think, at least the way I interpreted it, was that Martin seems to make these characters value or rate their success based on their sexual success. Because it seems like as Terry is doing better in life, he's suddenly able to attract women, namely Jane and Ursula. Mm. And as Gregory is going down a hill, he's no longer able to seduce anyone. Like, it really is, like, a, a one-to-one relationship. It It's clear, uh, not just through this book, but through a lot of Martin Amos's work, that he uh, does not have a particularly sensitive lens to the way he writes about women or writes for women. But, Ramya, I would like to get your thoughts and take on how women were represented in this novel because that was another one of the jarring things on the reread. And as as reading it through much more adult eyes, I was like, ooh, this is... Adult eyes, 2023 eyes, right? Like, as you said, reading a book like this now means you honestly, like, if you're trying to get through it and not just, hey, I can't handle this and toss it, if you're trying to get through a book like this, you have to be able to put aside some of the things that we know are wrong, dismissive, uh, you know, just challenging. And so the way he portrayed women, the, the way that I was, you know, psychoanalyzing this uh, throughout the read was that this is their idea of success, right? For these two men. Yeah. If they weren't getting girls or were getting girls— or could or couldn't or just their their own ego 
um, had to be satisfied through getting women. So it was very, very objectifying, obviously. But then you have this irony that both men have a relationship with a sister that ends up being a very deep part of, I don't know, the the, the mental health, the, the emotional well-being, uh, and then, you know, through that, uh, their their success or failure in life, mm-hmm. right? Because um, Terry, <laughs> his past and, and his sister who got murdered by his father uh, was a huge, you know, flashback and flash forward and uh, present moment in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was hugely traumatized by the oh, murder yeah. of his sister. And he would kind of use it to, to get, I guess, I don't know if it... It came across to me that he would use that information to get women, but I don't know if he was being genuine when he's like, and I would cry every time I brought her up. Mm. Well, the first time that he brought that up to Jane, he said that from now on, Jane was really, really nice and sympathetic to him. So he definitely used it. Yeah. Mm. Well, the way he writes it, because we know it's from his Mm -hmm. perspective, he just says, and then from now on, she was very sympathetic to me. He doesn't say, I said, yeah, he didn't say, I told her that so that she would be closer to me. Right. Mm. Right. Like you can't trust these people. Yeah. There's something interesting, and you both touched on it there in the way that this book is written. They are both advocating to you, the reader, from the start. They are talking right at you. It's almost like you're reading letters that have been sent to you. Yes. Mm. Which Which is a really fascinating way in which you might develop empathies or sympathies towards these characters. Um, You talk about the murder of Terry's younger sister which is revealed very, very early in the book. And he tells you that almost as a way to make you in the position of the person who might start feeling some sympathy or empathy to him because he's communicated that to you so directly. And that's one of, I think, the real marvelous writing tricks here that is done, that this engages you over and over again through life experience, there's something that comes up in the second chapter when Terry is describing how he gets to work in the morning and the number of I'm sorry yes. that he'll <laughs> spit out just arbitrarily mm. in any kind of human interaction and leaving any kind of crassness or crudeness aside. I think that's something that humans understand, maybe even Canadians, especially yeah. the, shooting out, the, the <laughs> shooting out of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to a drink machine, a coffee machine mm. sp- spits about a coffee. Uh, oh, uh, thank you. I'm sorry. You yeah. know, it, it's yeah, so yeah. interesting that these, these people are terrible, but they're also people. Yep. And they're completely different, Gregory and Terry. And I think there lies one of the most interesting points of the book is they're basically going in opposite directions with their lives. Yes. So Gregory is incredibly full of himself. He's a bundle of vanity. He's hilarious to read because the way he describes himself, it's like he's a perfect person. Like his job, the way he describes his job, he just shows up, makes a ton of money, doesn't do everything, and everybody relies on him because he's like <laughs> he the a, best person ever. an amazing ever. line about the puppeteers and the puppet strings i can't i'll try to pull it up it was so good <laughs> but it's even the way he describes the way he dresses oh i've got my cape i've put on i've, yes. I've wrapped yes. my cape around yeah. my shoulders <laughs> yeah and you know what it's not just the the opposing character attributes or uh the way that they convince us but the way that they talk about each other right like um Terry often uses homophobic slurs to describe uh, Greg, Greg, Gregory, and 
Gregory barely ever touches on that aspect of it. You only hear Gregory's responses, if you will, when they're having dialogue with each other. Because you get a bit of that as well, right? Mm -hmm. The overlapping of the Venn diagram where you get actual interactions between the two of them. They're not often, though. They're not they're kind of sprinkled throughout the book. But if we didn't know that these were unreliable characters, unreliable testimonies, um, then we wouldn't even think, wait, let's, you know, narrow in on how they talk to each other to maybe get a better idea. Because you don't. Like, I've never, I always thought, even through the dialogue, that Gregory was just a, uh egotistical person, a narcissist. Um, and everything that's his gets handed down to Terry. Mm. <laughs> you know, he actually describes that sometimes, like the women that he sleeps with, if Terry ends up with them, he describes them oh, as yeah. like, the table scraps. That was one oh. of the first horrible. scenes of yeah, the it was book. A, very early on, yeah, yeah, one of the first scenes of the book. You're thinking, what is going on? Like they're having a discussion about what girl uh, Terry can have because you know Greg's done with him. And I was like, okay. Oh. Gregory describes Terry at one point as a sort of circus attraction that he keeps in his apartment oh, for my his God. guests. <laughs> So like okay, so like this like this is it. Like we are laughing right now. Like even acknowledging the horribleness of these people. But I I think that's also what art is sometimes. And we've maybe lost that a little bit in contemporary writing. That neither of these people are supposed to be protagonists. Mm. Martin Amos writes them as awful people. And it's sort of up to the reader if you want to start developing those empathies or thinking about them as protagonists. But the point is, or, or, or at least it's worth considering, is this actually satire? And at what point can the reader be trusted with satire? Well, if it's satire, what is it supposed to be satirizing? I would say like the, the male, the fragile male ego. Yeah. The fragile Definitely. male ego of a male in their 20s. Definitely. Mm. It's a hyper portrayal of the way men treated women at the it, time. It, this is perfect. Like, we need to stamp that because that's exactly what I think this book is. It's like, you know, these guys are so overwhelmed or so ready for, think they so can get all these girls, whatever, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, is it really as big as they say it is? And, and are they really as tough and all that? But um, <laughs> I have to say... There was a lot about body parts, particularly. Mm. And I don't know how we can get um, to talking about this by tiptoeing around it. But really, like, the the stuff that was described and you could tell the emotional kind of licking the wounds. Oh, yeah. But through physical attributes, uh, body parts of themselves or of women. It was quite interesting Maybe leaving like the private parts out of it, out mm-hmm. of those descriptions. It's there's even one moment, I, I it might be the second or the third chapter, where Terry is describing his morning routine and like the bile that comes yes, out of him gross. and like the fluids that come out <laughs> yep, of him. Yep. And but it's it's a masterclass in writing by Amos, but it is disgusting. There's so much about substances. There's so much about drinking and smoking that it's. As disgusting as you can describe it, because, you know, he's a drunk, he's always drinking. Um, But also, sex isn't presented very uh, optimistically either. No. A lot of sex was portrayed as disgusting, gross, not just the women, but the actual act. 
of sex, which I found very interesting. Because if this is all they're reaching for, if this is all what they mark as success, then why is sex described so horribly? Is it the disconnect? Gregory doesn't even find half the women that he sleeps with attractive. Like, yeah, he, half, he complains like about uh, the way that um, Ursula takes off her shirt is, like, un undignified. Or it's like, she doesn't do it very smoothly. Mm. And like, that's the thing that he fixates on. It's, he's, he doesn't even care about the person. Like, he doesn't even know what he wants, honestly. Is pining over the right way to say it? He's still attached to his sister, which we didn't even get into that yet. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so he's still attached to his sister from, they're blood related, right guys? Uh, Ursula and Gregory are blood related, yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, that's right. Terry is, uh, is Gregory's foster, foster brother. Foster brother. Yeah, foster brother. Yeah, foster, yeah. foster brother, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyways, uh, Gregory and Ursula are connected from a very young time for Gregory. Like they were both children. Um, but for Gregory, it's like maybe back before he built up this ego back before the world. I think he even put it himself some way uh, before the world got to him kind of thing. And so that's the weak point for him. Is it the weak point for Terry? Ooh, mm, that's a good that's question. question. <laughs> what do you think, Jacob? I don't think Terry was interested in Ursula, um, Gregory's sister, until he, he knew. Yeah, until he knew. And it seems like he only wanted to sleep with her for, for the, the, yeah. the pride of having slept with Gregory's sister yeah. as like a point of revenge. It's his, exactly his point mm-hmm. of revenge. So even in that sense, it's not like she's the connector for the two of them. Because I'm not going to lie, when I read the synopsis before getting into this book at all, I thought, oh, these, uh, these two are obviously having, you know, issues. And maybe she's the one who happy ending brings it back together. I don't know, in some mm. weird, twisted way. But uh, clearly not, as you read this book. Well, well, that's it. When you read some of the basic synopses, it actually doesn't really get into the sexual undertones, overtones mm. <laughs> of, of this book. It actually <laughs> is a book that is oftentimes presented <laughs> as class struggle, as a representation of class, how class changed right. in England after World War II. That's that's in, in a lot of the reviews you might read, in some of the synopses you're going to read. They'll talk about this book as, as, an, uh, as an exercise in examining class struggle. That's not how the story is overtly told. The story is overtly told through a super misogynistic yes. uh, sexual lens, which which is fascinating because uh, so much of what critics or academics have taken out of this book is the representation of class struggle in England in the late 60s and early 70s, mm-hmm. which, which is in and of itself a very interesting topic. And that's what this book is somewhat about in besides the conquest of sexuality, it's Terrence making his way from being a working class guy and getting more power yep. and more money and more opportunity and Gregory sliding the other way from an old wealthy family. The, the dynamics of an entire country and society changing in a couple of decades. Mm. Yeah, what I've seen some reviewers say is that this book is more about the subjective nature of success, which is completely apart from this hypersexualization and and wanting to conquer women like it seems like that aspect of the book is completely apart from from the women and the way women are treated here and it kind of brings up the point that 
Is Martin Amos trying to say that success is a finite resource? Because while oh. Gregory is going down, it's like Terry is taking Gregory's success yes. for himself. But while one goes up, one goes together. down. There always has to be somebody that gets knocked down for another person to go up. Am I interpreting that right? What do you guys think? I think that that's true, but in the context that they are directly intertwined. Mm. You know, mm. he, Terry, was fostered by the successful family and, I don't know, pity or whatever else came through of Gregory. And so it has to be. It has to be linked in some way that... And remember, it plays right to Gregory's biases of who Terry is and vice versa. Yeah. Right? It's been like that forever. It's not just the money. It's not just the place in society. But you heard them talk about in school. Who was this guy and who was this guy? Mm. Right? Who was the yin to his yang? And that has always been, and I don't think that that's directly related to success. I I do take Jacob's question though at, at its at its face value. Mm. Um, it was Emerson who wrote, "Families are always rising and falling in America." Right, and maybe that is a criticism of capitalism. Right, that in the end, scarcity and resources are supposed to be at the core of capitalism. So if you're going to climb. Or if I'm going to climb, you must fall. Yes, yep. And the, just that Gregory and Terrence become a very microcosm of the allegory. So then the getting women and the sex part of it is an aside or it's mm. a mm. it's a measure of. Like this is something I still don't understand about this book. Why was all this sexual conquering involved here? Like why is it Because if you here? had the money and I, had the resources. I don't know if I... I can't wrap my head around what that has to do with these themes of success because I think it's relevant that the title of the book is success. Oh, and that's very what, relevant, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's yes. what all the all the reviewers are talking about is like the subjective nature of success and if success is a finite resource. Like that's what everybody's taking out of it. So where does all this sexual stuff come in? Because getting laid is success. That, that... Mm. But it takes up like... 80% of the page count. Yeah, it does. But at it the does. core of it, that's what it is. That's what they're, you know, you said it, Dave. They're trying to convince us of something. Uh, mm. And they're trying to advocate for something. And the only thing that I heard them actually advocate for, not the unconscious stuff and the interpretive stuff that we're putting together, but the only thing that I heard them talk about is getting women mm. and getting laid. Yeah, that that was my perception rereading it as well. I I I, uh, I wish I had brought this in with me, but I went and tried to track down the essay that I wrote about this in that English Ooh. class, oh, and I couldn't find it. Brilliant! But but so much oh. of what I wrote about in that was class struggle. And now, as Ramya so rightly points out, upon rereading the book, I'm like. No, this was just about sex, and that's why you Literally. perverted twenty-year-old Dave Brown loved this book <laughs> because, like, you because, like, you just like that's just how like how you looked, that, and that's why Dave, you had such a shock to the system when you reread, right? Yeah. Or like one yeah. of the reasons where you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know. Yeah, I totally unconsciously thinking, oh, yeah, a professor assigned this to me. It could, <laughs> it couldn't, it couldn't have, it couldn't have been bad. But I also, but I, but I do. I do want to come back to Amos, the writer mm. here, mm-hmm. because he describes writing fiction as the ultimate freedom. And for fear of making too many references here, if you go to one of his later works that was eventually shortlisted for a Booker Prize, a book called Time's Arrow, 
that tells the story in reverse. It literally tells the story in opposite time. Mm. So the book starts at the end and moves back to the beginning of someone's life. Huh. And everything happens in reverse. Scors- uh, uh, Scorsese, Martin Amos is someone who like loves playing with the form. And I, and I do think that's where maybe there's some forgivability for what I would say is just like really crass, rude, poor, distasteful writing because he sees it as freedom. And if you go into some of his later works, it's not crass like this. This is by far something that clearly a 25-year-old man wrote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the freedom, I felt it in just the way that these characters let themselves out to us, the reader. Uh, they weren't really holding back anything. Nothing. Right? Which is why we were so convinced of who they were until something would pop up where, you know, we got a reality check or a fact check and said, wait a minute, mm. you'd be lying to me the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but and you start realizing that things are off when you read, like, say, a certain month and Gregory has his perspective and then Terrence has his other perspective mm. and you realize that they have conflicting information. Yeah. Like, for example, there's one point that when uh, Gregory gets sick, he gets the flu. Or like Martin says it, he gets a Lulu of the flu. <laughs> a Lulu of the flu. <laughs> yeah. I love it. They play a game of backgammon. Terrence says that he won, but Gregory doesn't pay him back. And Gregory says he that he won 10, pence oh. off, 10 pounds off of yeah, Terry. Yeah, yeah. And it's small things like that. And you're I like, didn't even pay attention to that. What is going on? And it makes me realize, like, huh, there's other things that he's lying there's about. There's something going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and right. I mentioned it earlier, but also uh, Gregory's job is total phony. He completely misrepresents what he does for work. Yeah, he claims mm. that he's like he's like a, a, a key artistic figure at this art gallery. Mm, yeah. And then it turns out he's like literally just like, and he plays assistant. it out. Yeah. He plays it out for us completely. You know, he's in there. They're all asking him, oh, how do you spell this? How do you spell that? He's like, oh, God. All right, let me save you again. And he, he walks through the scene for quite a, a while. And it was the first time we get an actual depiction of what his work is like. You literally get double gaslit from both of them. Yes. yes. Just in different yes, directions. Did. But you know what? It challenges your own biases because I felt I got less gaslit from Terry than... Than Gregory. Oh, interesting. I felt less lied to. I feel less annoyed and taken aback about Terry's growth and and trajectory through this book than Gregory's. Gregory was just like, everything he says, I I can't trust him anymore. He's a clear liar. Clearly. Ramya, go a little deeper on that because I'm I'm inclined to agree with you that even though I believe Terry to be an unreliable narrator who's also a total dirtbag – I don't necessarily feel like, yeah, that 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 he maybe will misrepresent mm. events, whereas Gregory will misrepresent. And I everything. think it's an ego thing. Terry was always the down in the dumps dude. He was always the, you know, I can't get the girls. I don't have the money. I'm trying to get this dead guy smell out of my clothes. Like he. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was a great, great portion. Oh my <laughs> gosh, he buys a secondhand suit and he gets it tailored and fixed up, so it's gonna be great. Right. And then it smells like a dead guy who sweat all the time. Yeah. And he can't get the smell out for the life of him. Oh my god, I forgot about that it was passage. An oh epic my gosh. Passage. I mean, there's so many little details of. Of gross things that he yes. does like he he just drinks whiskey instead of brushing you. his teeth yes. uh, and he'll he, just tell you yeah he pees in the sink so he doesn't wake up or yeah. so it's like it reminds me that I need to wipe you know like it's just oh, yeah. he's such a 
dirt bag. Oh. But he's so open about it. Like, I didn't feel that I needed to distrust him for anything. Whereas Gregory, like, he's too good to be true. He's too successful. He's too full of himself. There's, for me at least, an instant wall that goes up where I'm like, I don't know about that, mm. man. Uh, whereas this guy, what else could possibly go wrong in Terry's life? Yeah. He's already at the yeah. bottom. I, You know, I, I know that things are probably a little tight for time here. Mm. So I want to backtrack to something that both of you said. You both said it was hard to get through this book. And I will say, having read the paperback with a magnifying glass 20 years ago and having read the ebook with a super large font this time <laughs> around, mm. I also found it difficult to read. Because Martin Amos does not write short sentences. Comma, 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 parentheses, parentheses, double comma, triple parentheses, double narrator. What's going on? You guys both experienced the audiobook. Can you guys describe maybe a little bit what the audiobook experience was like? Because I imagine it must have been challenging to listen to you. Jacob, I think you alluded to that a little bit. It must have been challenging to read more than anything because hearing you say that he uses punctuation like he drinks water is like (laughs) (laughs) i'm really surprised because the reader uh, ramya you listen to the version on sila right yep no the author the reader did an amazing job sorry i forget his name but you could tell when he was doing a gregory bit and when he was doing a terrence bit because gregory was incredibly full of himself and you could hear it in his voice he was very proud like he was reading with his chin up Mm. and then you can hear him slouching in his chair when he was reading with terry fabulous fabulous narrator uh and narration job i found it easier to read when i sped the heck out of this book like 1.5 on sila and that's really 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 fast for me, even. Um, but I think that it's just, it felt more digestible. Having too much to think about through passages, through scenes, through chapters felt very taxing for me at some points, in the first half of the book especially. Because I was like, I was getting caught up in the details, you know, caught up in the language, caught yes. up in just like how many F more F words before the third line, <laughs> right? Like we cannot paint this more profanely like than it actually is. It's you know, written vile. But uh, as I sped it up, I thought there was just more the bigger things. You were able to zoom out more and digest more of the bigger picture. I will say, though, I do love Martin Amos's writing. I said at the start that he does linguistic jujitsu. It is true. Like, it's like he has an aversion to putting five words consecutively that have been said before. Like, every sentence seems like it was the first time it was ever written. We talked about the two men. We talked about the role of women in this book, sort of, kind of. Was there anything you wanted to, either of you wanted to say about a particular woman in this book and whether or not it was uh, more than just whether or not this character was just a a placeholder, if you will. I I do, yeah, about Ursula especially. She goes through a lot in this book and it's so thrown to the side that she is incredibly unwell. Yes. To the point where she attempts to commit suicide. To the point where schizophrenia is just a toss-away word. Yeah, exactly. Like, she's completely unwell but in the background. And to give you another an idea of how much Gregory is a scumbag, when Ursula tries to take her own life, uh, Terence is telling Gregory to go to the hospital, and Gregory says, "Ursula knows how much I hate hospitals." Oh, oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Um, I mean, I laughed, but that's horrible. I mean, I'm I'm inclined to agree with Jacob that Ursula ends up becoming 
a little bit more than just a stand-in piece that, that Ursula does become something that propels the plot. Her arrival in, is it March or April, when she finally arrives in the storyline, that's when things really start moving forward. Mm. Mm-hmm. That she ends up being a bit of a plot driver. But again, I still don't think written particularly empathetically no, no. or sympathetically, like still really yeah. written through the eyes of, again, I'm going to come back to this. Some Like Martin Amos wrote this book when he was like 25 years old. I don't, I don't think there's any 25 year old man on the planet uh, with apologies, uh, Jacob. I know, <laughs> I know you're maybe in that demographic. I'm 26, yeah. yeah like, 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 I, like I, I don't think there's, I mean, listen, I don't think there's actually a 40 year old man on the planet who like knows how to write a woman, but I especially don't think a 25 year old man mm, uh, mm. from who comes from some wealth, uh, like understands how to write yeah. a, a woman going through a mental health distress. One final note on Martin Amos. Uh, I saw an interview with him talking about how to write a sentence, and he gave a bit of writing advice that I never heard before. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm so excited. It hit me. I'm, so, I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah. It's not crass. It's not crass. I thought it was super interesting. He just said to avoid repeating prefi- uh, prefixes and suffixes. So, for example, never use a w- two words that finish with the same suffix, like T-I-O-N, mm. in the same sentence, or never use the same prefix twice. It's kind of like phonetic redundancy you want to keep it fresh that right. sentence oh okay that's interesting i will go in to the rest of my life remembering this i, I almost want to pull up a page of the novel right now and just and see, see and oh just, i like, did see. i did no, yeah. he repeats suffixes and prefixes all the time what the hell man <laughs> yeah <laughs> although you know again he like he eventually became a professor of literature in uh, manchester and again I, i'll keep coming back to this like he was so young when he wrote this that maybe even some of the rules that he later applied in his writing in life were not present mm, here yet. Mm-hmm. This was a this was, I believe, only his second novel, which is still wild to think that he wrote two novels in his twenties. Like, yeah. man, I'm I'm approaching forty here, mm. and uh, I I've written zero novels. <laughs> Are you about to? Are you about to write a novel? Uh, I've I you know it's, is this a I, teaser on I, the show? I have <laughs> contemplated uh, writing. Wow. Might be more of a memoir mm. than creative writing on the front oh, end. Oh, I'm so down. Yeah. To um, read a Dave Brown memoir. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Breaking right. news. Yes. <laughs> That's can, right. can you write a memoir at 40 as, when you haven't actually accomplished oh, yeah. anything in life? No, no. And I swear <laughs> if I see a suffix or a prefix repeated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> After our guy, Martin Amos said no, no. <laughs> Dave, you're the best. Thank you so much. No, you guys are the best. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Dave Brown of Now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV, our morning show. Check him out there. And also, uh, we will rope him back in for more interesting, intriguing recommendations (laughs) here on AMI-Audiobook. Interesting. Yeah, interesting, to say the least. After the break, uh, we're going to come back with our handful of recommendations that we started to tell you about last week. We got a few more things we want to get to, so... Let's get to it after the break on AMI Audiobook Review. Welcome back. This is AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. And we just concluded a convo with Dave Brown and his recommendation. Mm. So it's only fitting that we continue with our recommendations (laughs) friend that we started last week with you uh but before we do any of that i'm completely lying to you my goodness i get so influenced by gregory um we <laughs> are <laughs> gonna give you the sila home page this is from the center for equitable library access and these are the three featured titles on the home page celalibrary.ca 19 steps 
by Millie Bobby Brown. This is a family stories. We also have Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. This is for social issues, this title. And the last one up there is Reykjavik, a crime story by Ragnar Jonasson. Mysteries and crime stories. Okay, continuing on. These are the categories we featured last time. So go back and listen if you want recommendations for thrillers slash mystery from Jacob and I. Mm-hmm. And nonfiction. We got to a couple of nonfiction titles. Yeah, we were planning on doing five categories, but we definitely got carried away. We but that's fine. Because mm-hmm. we like to carry you away. Wow. Listeners. Amazing. All right. Ramya? Yes. Do you want to start with um, historical fiction? Yeah. But I think you should start because I will start off the convo around historical fiction by saying I don't think I've ever read historical fiction properly. I don't even know if I fully believe in what historical fiction is. I have what? problems with the category itself. And oh, what? I know it's a little complicated for me. But can, I did Can you elaborate read, on that? I did read a couple historical fiction novels through book clubs. Like Letters... Letters Across the Sea. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Hmm. Do you not enjoy historical fiction? Number or do you one. have an issue with the genre? Like, do you have an issue with the categorization of books that are in that area? Or do you find it I disrespectful or distasteful to no. change histor- history? Like, what is it? It's that when you read historical fiction, you have to probably understand what part of it is history and what part of it is fiction. And I struggle with how to fully grasp that. You know, do you do that through post-reading research when you've already taken in the entire book as historical fiction? Or do you, you know, jot down things as you go? I think that I just need to know if it's nonfiction or not. And so this historical fiction aspect, unless I get all the notes ahead of time uh, about what part is fiction, I struggle to sit with the book as I'm reading it. Generally speaking, they're more fiction than historical. That What's is historical is the setting, right? Is it it's always the place though? and time and the culture in which it takes place? Is it always though? What do you mean? Is it? Is it yes, always? Absolutely, just it is the, always. No, is it just the setting? Sometimes the the characters and the mm, their life experiences are also based on history. But well, based fiction. on history, like a character can be a samurai if they're in like feudal Japan. Sure. Right? Like, that's an aspect of history. And then also fiction. there's, like, tidbits. You know, this fight was real. However, this was fictionalized. Can I suggest to you a historical fiction book that might yes, actually tell us. intrigue you? What's your uh, okay. recommendation? Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. Mm. This is a book that came out in 1958 by an African author. And it has to do... And it's set in pre-colonial... Uh, Igbo territory, and that's in modern-day Nigeria, I think. It's set in pre-colonial Africa, I think in the early 1800s. Actually, it's more right when the missionaries first start arriving, but it's not really about the missionaries. It's about uh, Okankwo, who is a high-ranking member of a tribe. He's seen high esteem by a lot of people. He's this patriarch of this big family. And Really, the book, more than the effects of colonialism, which is what you would think it would be about, Mm. it's honestly kind of, through my modern lens, about toxic masculinity. Mm. Because 
He rules his family with an iron fist and detests everything that's weakness. And he sees women as being weak. And that's something that the author really pushes back against. And he shows the women in his life being incredibly strong and having a ton of fortitude. And his and Okonkwo's overwhelming need to be strong against all circumstances is ultimately the downfall of his tribe, of his tribe, where it would have been better for him to be flexible and diplomatic. He wanted to fight fight absolutely everything that came to his tribe that the the missionaries brought to him and the and the actual carnage that missionaries coming to Africa caused. Well, that sounds super intriguing, number one. Hmm. Um, is he challenged throughout the book to go the diplomatic and flexible route? By the Okonkwo women? is an awful man and is completely inflexible. And that is his downfall in the end. He is pushed to be more diplomatic, but ultimately all the issues that come to him, his family, and to a lesser extent his tribe are almost all caused by his inflexibility and absolute need to be strong and resistant to all outside powers. But who's influent- who is encouraging him to take a different approach? Is it Namely the women his, in his wife, life? Okay. even his son, who's taking quite a different path in oh, terms of his personality and mm. what he enjoys and what he does. The, this book also has an absolutely brutal ending that everybody who reads it just remembers it. It's... Uh, Altogether, it's a really powerful book that it doesn't, it's not a simple colonialism bad book. It's, while colonialism is a big theme in it, the main theme here is the dangers of being inflexible. So what makes this book fiction? What part of it is fiction? Well, Okonko is not real. Okay, Okonko, so the character's his entire not family real. is not real, yeah. So in this story, case, yeah. where mm-hmm. it's very easy to be like, you know, this was just taken at a point in history and we're exploring a, a fictional character. But just to paint the picture of this historical time, right? That's historical fiction. No, that's this historical fiction. <laughs> I No, I'd argue that it would be historical fiction as a whole, right? It, it paints a picture of a point in time in history. Yes. A point in time and Absolutely. place in history. But be, it makes it easier to digest this as what is the history and what is fiction because this character isn't real. There are mm. historical fiction titles where the character is real, and then we're trying to pull apart the fiction in the history to say, okay, this is all history, however, this isn't. Don't forget that this part was fiction. And that right. is what I find confusing. I don't know if it's just my retention. If you're reading a book about like World War II and Winston Churchill like goes into uh-huh. like a dance competition. Yeah, you know, it's, like, this it's is not- why the crown is in so much freaking trouble all the time. The show. Oh, because they're misrepresenting Because they're misrepresenting actual history. But, you know, the creators and the writers, no, no, no. It's fictional. Mm. Everybody, it's fictional. Please don't come at us. I think I understand your gripe with historical fiction. Mm. It just, it has to walk such a tightrope between being accurate and being, and respecting the history. Yes. Because I think all of us have a duty to be factual, especially when you're representing history, right? Especially if you're reading with the intention of understanding history. You know, as a reader, like, let's say I'm completely ignorant of this uh, time in history, of this, you know, thing. And I'm going to read 
trying to get to know, trying to up my knowledge about it by reading this book, I have to understand what's real and what's not. It's not a textbook, right? It's a narrative. And that's something you just can't. I find it difficult. You can't pull it apart. You can't separate the fiction from what is meant to be educational. Yeah, Yeah, because there's still all a a bunch of uh, creative agency that's taken. That's fine. You're a hater. Let's move on to the next series. That's not the end. What is your favorite series, (laughs) hater? (laughs) Everybody pause. Not a hater. All right. (laughs) If anything, I'll read this recommendation and we'll come back to this topic. Okay, so... um, where are we, series? Yeah, what is your favorite series? Other than Harry Potter? Yeah, no, you exclude that one. I can't one. do that? No, no. I can't do it? Okay. I didn't really write down one other than Harry Potter. No, I'm kidding. Um, I don't get through series, so the the rec- I, it's not really recommendations. It's more like a, a have-read list of series, uh, like the uh, Divergent series or... I can't believe I'm putting this in like Fifty Shades of Grey series because I don't get through series. Oftentimes, I will read the first book of a trilogy and not get past it. Not th- I basically jump ahead to the point of I don't think there's anything in book two and book three that will grab at me the same way that book one has mm. and then I don't continue. For you, though... There's two parts to this for me. Number two is that I'm not a huge fantasy reader. So I don't get into fantasy series other than Harry Potter. Um, For you, though, you're a huge fantasy reader. Yeah, that's one of the weird quirks of fantasy is that it's almost all exclusively series. Everything's a series. Because it takes so long to establish the world. And then when the world is different than planet Earth, like it takes a long time to establish that. But it's an investment. It is an investment. And you care about your investments. And but right. but authors are smart, right? You don't have to be invested. For example, I read Ender's Game, which was a really sick book. Yeah. I really enjoyed Ender's Game. And of course, there's more to Ender's Game than the first book. But here I am thinking, why would I read more of it? I loved this. I loved the world. I almost like distrust that it could get any better. So I want to stop where it ends. Is that cold? Is this a cold approach to reading? There's so many books you could be reading out there. You don't owe authors anything. You mm. can read whatever you want. Like, I don't think you're wrong in thinking this. I think you just have different mentalities. Yeah. I think when I say a series, it's something to be invested in. And I like picking up a book from book two, book three, knowing that I know the characters. Fair. And a lot has already been established. It's like being with friends and having this long history behind yeah, you. Yeah, of course. Right? There's so much already established there. You just understand things better yeah the, the characters are much fleshed out from the start it's like it's like instead of going into actually i'll just move on what <laughs> i want to know <laughs> i tried to come out with an absolute galaxy brain analogy but it wasn't working it wasn't working all right no. okay give us your recommendation then for series the Gentleman Bastards by Scott Lynch is Ooh. a fantasy series that's really light on fantasy elements um it's about a criminal underworld gang in a fantasy setting that's mostly in like dense urban areas. Very light in fantasy elements because all the main characters, and I mean all the main characters, like do not do any magic. They don't interact with any magic. All they want to do is rob rich people blind. That's all it is. <laughs> wow. It's so good. I started it. Yeah. That's and all I could say. The biggest selling point for this book is the dialogue. 
all the characters, even though they're like orphan criminals, speak like like English dandies. Yeah. They're like incredibly elegant and like impossibly witty to the point where it's very extra. Yes. And the um the narrator for this book, Michael Page, used to be a Shakespearean actor. And he does the whole thing where he like really speaks with his chest and like is the absolute opposite of monotone. Oh, it's so he good. He speaks in every key there is. And the elaborate pranking that comes oh. with the robbing. Yeah. Scott Lynch must have been a criminal back in the day because he knows a <laughs> he knows lot. So Yo, there are so many little tricks that I would have <laughs> never thought about. I'm like, oh, that's actually brilliant. I know. And you get the inside, like the the uh, brain. How do you say it? Like you get the the internal uh, discussion of why these tricks the are. The justification, yes. Yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. The justification of why do this trick at this time to this person mm. uh, to the point where, you know, sometimes you're not even in the loop. And then when you're brought into the loop, you're like, oh, my God, that was you the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> He's an amazing writer in setting up all of these plots yeah. and, and cons that they're trying to do on all these rich people. How many mm. books in the series? There are three books in the series and there's a fourth one coming out in 2024. Oh. Um, the nice thing with this series is that the first book, The Lies of Locke Lamora, it works really well as a one-off, mm-hmm. even though it's the first of a series. It has to be that way. I'm telling you, if yeah. you're writing a book nowadays, you have to, for marketing purposes, have a standalone-esque book, even if you continue. And just so I can underline this recommendation, this is my favorite book of all time. Yep. I love this book. It is so much fun. It cracks me up. Uh, the characters are absolutely lovely, like some of the best bromance that you will ever mm. come across. Really good romance in the later books, too. Like, I, I got oh. surprisingly involved in that aspect. No kidding. Also, like, unpredictable to the point where it's stupid. You're just like, this is not what I was sold, but oh. I'm, I'm okay with it. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, okay. moving on super quick. Yeah? Uh, Ramya? What? Old books slash classic books. Okay, it's uh, going to be a controversial one, but it's gone with the wind. Why controversial? It's just hard to read nowadays. Oh. Yeah, Margaret How Mitchell. So? I've never heard this before. Really? Why is it hard to it's read? It's hard to read now. It's similar. Okay, not at all similar, but in the vein of, you know, reading through 2023 eyes, as we talked about with Dave Brown, um, a book that you can pick up now and think like, God, there's so many biases against women, uh, against who you are supposed to be as a man, about what is independence, what you would, you know, ride or die for. So dated. It's very dated. Very, very dated. So uh, because of how dated it is, it can be quite controversial. I think it can be controversial in other ways as well. But yo, one of my favorite books. Oh, okay. Interesting. So still one of your favorite books, Mm. even though it's clearly dated. Yeah, because she, the woman, uh, Scarlett O'Hara, is one of the best painting, like the the best portrayal of a strong-willed, ind- independent, hard-headed woman that I've seen in literature. So That's quite the sales pitch. I know, I know. You? The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. This one was came out in 1844. I actually recommended this one when you invited me like a year and a half ago on this show. Oh, throwback. But this is another one of my favorites. It's super long, really, really fast-paced. Written in 1844, but does not feel dated because it really is just an adventure novel with mm. twists. And honestly, I'll leave it at that. Okay. It's 
It's like the Breaking Bad of books, where everybody recommends it and everybody likes it, Stop and it. it's annoying to the point you're like, "Oh my god, yes!" I know it's a Stop good book. Stop it. That's it. why I'm going to read it now, because you said it's the Breaking Bad of books. Because people are obnoxious about <laughs> recommending it. <laughs> that's why I'm leaving it. There. But you can't not love it. <laughs> awesome. Ram, yeah, that's it for today. Yep, that's it. Okay, we're hanging up. Uh, we will catch you next week where we talk with Amir Khan. He's back with some monthly book updates. And I'm your host, Ramya Amuddin, co-host Jacob Shemansky with technical producer Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Happy audiobook listening. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.